Good morning, Monaco. Good afternoon, Manama. And good evening, Port Vila for Washington, D.C. I'm Ethan Plotkin, and this is Intrigue Out Loud, your go-to audio guide to the globe. On today's show, I'm joined by Intrigue co-founder John Fowler to discuss the G7 summit in Hiroshima and why France is trying to arrest a Lebanese banker. It's all coming up. Morning, John. How are you? I am doing pretty well, Ethan. And you? Ah, doing very well. Thank you very much. It's a bright, sunny day. So we're talking about uh, the G7 summit today, uh, which was in Japan. First of all, why are we talking about this? What is the G7? That seems like a pretty good place to start. <laughs> what, what is it? I mean, just so many Gs, right? Uh, there's the G7, there's G10, G12, G15. Uh, there's obviously the uh, the G20, which everyone knows about. But, um, you know, G just means group. Uh, it's a fancy way of saying a group of seven countries, a group of 10 countries, whatever. Um, and, you know, there is as many formulations of that as you can think of. Um, but... Of all these groups, I would say that the G7 is probably the most influential. Um, it's comprised of seven countries, no surprise, um, and one block, the US, the UK, Japan, Canada, France, Germany, Italy, and the rest of the EU. Um, so they, that that's the one block that makes up the G7, and, and, and they make up around 10% of global population uh, and 40% of global, global GDP. So it's a, it's, a, it's a collection of really rich countries, right? Um, it started informally as a as an international sort of club, a place where finance ministers could have a, a chat over a, a whiskey. Um, <laughs> but it's risen to this hugely important venue for the world's advanced democracies to sort of plan out shared policies and, and trade notes. Um, and unsurprisingly, that's the reason that it's also uh, the target of, of plenty of conspiracy theories. <laughs> that, yeah, that makes sense. So, so what was on the agenda at this year's summit? You won't be shocked to hear that it was uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. That That's always at the top of the list. Um, and I suppose in, in a way the G7 is uniquely positioned uh, to speak on the Russia issue because, you know, the G7 actually used to be the G8 from 97 to 2014. Russia was a member of the group, being a, a large economy, um, until its invasion and annexation of Crimea back in 2014, which a lot of folks forget about. But that, that happened, uh, you know, back in 2014. Um, that led to Russia's expulsion from, from the G8, as it was then. Um, you know, and on top of all, on top of all of that, I think the meeting was also held in Hiroshima, Japan, which several Japanese commentators have pointed out that uh, the poignancy of kind of having a meeting in a place that was decimated by a nuclear weapon in 1945, and then as you have Russia's nuclear saber saber rattling, you know that symbolism isn't lost on anyone. So, so Russia was dominating the agenda, I think. And there was just the right person there to to speak about it. Right, exactly. That was the big surprise of the weekend is, uh, you know, everyone had been kind of waiting with bated breath to see if President Ukrainian President Zelensky would uh, turn up, and he did. Um, it was a pretty big diplomatic week for Zelensky, actually. He, he made the trip to Japan after attending the Arab League summit in Saudi Arabia. Uh, that's a story for another time. But, you know, he, he kind of was doing a bit of a roadshow of diplomacy this week. Um, and, and the big news that came out of the summit in, in Japan was um, that the U.S., well, President Biden, the U.S., and and the kind of aligned NATO nations approved a European plan to uh, equip Ukraine uh, and train Ukrainian pilots on American-made F-16 fighter jets, which Zelensky says are crucial to the Ukrainian military's upcoming counteroffensive. But but why go all that way to meet with G7 leaders? I mean, these are countries that Zelensky communicates 
with pretty frequently. Well, mate, we know this better than anyone. Nothing beats FaceTime, being True. in the same room with people, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, Zelensky got to press the flesh with, like, Rishi Sunak and, and Macron and other supportive world leaders um, right as the US agreed to move on those F-16s. And that, that's, a, that's a great kind of – that's a great photo. It's a great, um, it's a great opportunity. Uh, and he got to earn a little bit of goodwill in Asia as well, where, you know, Zelensky hasn't been there since the war started. Um, so, so there's that reason. Another reason is I think too, and, and this was kind of like delicious in a, in a drama way, but another reason is that he got to meet face to face with two guys, two men, two leaders who um, perhaps are seen to be kind of neutral or on the fence about the war in Ukraine. That's Prime Minister Modi of India and President Lula of Brazil. Um, they were both at the summit uh, and they met with Zelensky. As I said, like India and Brazil, two massive economies, obviously, with major influence in the global south, but they have been kind of insufficiently supportive of Ukraine's war efforts so far. Um, and I think you could make the argument that they've actually helped Russia. Um, so I think Zelensky probably want to, wanted to meet with them, as I said, to, to have the awkward moment, the drama, um, but kind of actually to meet with them face to face and look them in the eye and make his case uh, as to why they should reconsider their non-aligned positions. Right. Trying to basically bring the war to their doorstep so they, they can't ignore it anymore. Yeah. But John, what about that other you know $17 trillion, $1.4 billion person-sized elephant in the room? China, right? Eh? Always China. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, China was... <laughs> massively on the agenda. I, I think that's kind of where, well, from my perspective, that's that's the the really interesting part about this summit. Uh, the G7 location rotates between its seven members. Um, and as I said, it just, it was happened to be in Japan this year um, at a time when I think it's fair to say most eyes have been on the region. The closing statement that the G7 countries released was, I think it reflects how central China has become to, to that group of countries. Um, they talk about a free, a free and open Indo-Pacific region. They denounced uh, economic coercion and, and they called for um, to, to reduce excessive dependencies uh, in critical supply chains. I mean, it's pretty obvious who that's talking about, right? There's, there's no, there's, <laughs> there's no sort of uh, subtlety to those statements. And and China's response? Yeah, I mean, predictably, uh, not too pleased. Um, <laughs> Uh, they they said they were strongly dissatisfied with the statement and they criticized the G7 for its apparent hypocrisy. Uh, a, a Chinese spokesperson said that uh, the G7 talks about pursuing a peaceful, stable and prosperous world while actually doing things that are undermining world peace and regional stability and suppressing other countries' development. Uh, you know, it, it's important to note that the G7's positioning on China, I think, wasn't all that combative. Um, they also said things like the policies are, are neither designed to harm China, nor to thwart its economic progress and development. Um, so I think it was fairly balanced, but it's not surprising that China kind of only heard the, the, the sort of more hostile parts of the statement. It strikes me, John, that these two big issues, Russia and China, were, were probably identical to the primary mm. issues last year. I mean, did the did the summit break ground anywhere else? Yeah, I, th I think that's a fair thing to say. I, I, um, you know, climate change came up as well, of course. Um, and, there, and this year there was also a bit of chat about AI and its potential disruptions. Um, but, you know, even the G7 is first and foremost an economic club group of countries. Um, and I think pretty rightly, they the, the two issues that they talk about, you know, Russia and China, those are fundamentally economic in nature. Um, so, so it makes it, it's not surprising that they dominated the agenda. You know, the the war in Ukraine has upended the global economy in ways we've talked about, you know, dozens of times and we don't we don't need to go back into them. 
But, you know, should there ever be a conflict with China, those disruptions would be, you know, 25-fold, 100-fold, 1,000-fold. They'd be unthinkable. Um, you know, that's not to say that climate change and AI aren't disruptive things. They are, but they're kind of, you know, in the distance. Russia and China feel immediate. So I think that's why the G7 are watching those so closely. Um, and you know what? This time next year, it wouldn't surprise me if we're having the same chat saying Russia and China dominates the, the G7 agenda. Looking forward to it. I'm Julia McFarlane, co-host of One Decision Podcast. And along with the former head of the British intelligence service MI6, Sir Richard Dearlove, we speak with those who make decisions that shape our world. Each week, we have all new fascinating insights and in-depth conversations about the difficult choices that have global impact. We also explore the decisions that lie ahead. New episodes of One Decision drop every Thursday. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. All right, welcome back. Next up, John, we're talking about Lebanon. Yeah, we are, that country with delicious food, right? Um, but frankly, this is a story that's become, it's a little sad and it's become pretty familiar over the, over the, over the recent years. Um, and, and the story is that last Friday, uh, the Lebanese government received a red notice from Interpol to arrest the head of its central bank, Riyad Salame. The red notice went out to Lebanon's justice ministry, uh, and it's waiting approval right now. If it's approved, the country's interior minister said uh, Lebanon would carry out um, uh, an operation to arrest Salama. Uh, backing up here, who is Riyad Salman and what is he accused of? He's actually a really interesting character. I think, I think he's pretty fascinating. Uh, he's a highly educated former Merrill Lynch banker turned monetary chief. Um, he, served, he has served as Lebanon's central bank governor since 1993. I mean, that's a long time, 30 years, right? Um, and it makes him the longest serving chief central banker uh, anywhere in the world. For a long time, he was celebrated uh, at home and abroad as a sort of a brilliant steward of the Lebanese economy after the country's devastating 15-year civil war. And he was even considered for a while, I think, to be uh, a leading candidate uh, for president. But his reputation has taken quite a hit. By 2015, uh, Lebanon's debt-to-GDP ratio was completely out of whack. Uh, and, and by 2020, the country has uh, it defaulted on its debt in 2020. Since then, I think it's fair to say that Lebanon's been in a complete crisis. Uh, 75% of people in Lebanon live below the poverty line, which is, is a stunning fact, I thought. Um, but leaving aside his monetary mismanagement or you know his stewardship of a, of a failing economy, he also stands accused of embezzling around 330 million dollars alongside his brother and, and depositing it in offshore accounts to fund what um what prosecutors say is an extremely lavish lifestyle with you know fancy Paris apartments and, and all the things you buy with 330 million. <laughs> I know exactly what I would do with 330 million dollars. <laughs> but but John if it's Interpol issuing this arrest warrant, then you know it's not uh coming from inside the house, right? It's it's not <laughs> Lebanon investigating him. Right. Yeah, the call's not coming from inside the house. Exactly. <laughs> uh, it is, you're right, is that Lebanon is investigating for these alleged alleged crimes, um, but the warrant wasn't served by them. So that's what you're referring to. It was actually served by, oh, requested by France. Um, France has been investigating him, or well, Salama, for several years now. Um, I think France is one of about a half dozen European countries that's been investigating him for years. And in March of last year, some of those governments froze some of his overseas assets, about $130 million worth of his assets. 
Um, and French prosecutors tried to summon Salama for hearings, but he was nowhere to be found and he never showed up. So that's why last Tuesday the French government issued an arrest warrant um, and on Friday they got the Interpol approval to serve it on the Lebanese government. So what's next then for Mr. Salama? Yeah, I mean, it's it's not clear. I, I don't think I'd like to have a, a red notice um, out in my name, but, uh, you know, the, the warrant is a big escalation in the international effort to hold him accountable. Um, but as of now... And to be clear, this could change. We're recording on Sunday and, you know, you, you folks will hear this uh, on Monday morning. But as of now, Salome is still at large. Um, and, and look, he, he's one of the top dogs in Lebanon's political elite, uh, and that earns him a lot of protection. Um, these guys tend to look out for each other. In fact, there's a, the Lebanese judge who was investigating Salama was ousted just a couple of weeks ago, which, you know, that's not an uncommon thing in Lebanon. Um, for example, the judge investigating the explosion at Beirut's port back in 2020, um, that was widely believed to have been the result of government negligence. So the judge investigating the government negligence, he was ousted as well. Um, so, you know, if I had to guess, I'd say Salama's arrest by the Lebanese government is unlikely. Um, but but what this Interpol warrant will do is make it you know next to impossible for Salama to leave Lebanon, um, and if those allegations are true, and you know they are allegations at this point, we've got to be careful about not you know <laughs> convicting him before he gets a trial. But if they are true, um, the warrant will make it impossible for him to enjoy those Parisian apartments and, and all the luxuries he's acquired with uh, with his three hundred and thirty million dollars. Uh, you know, I think I think a nice kind of bow on this story is there's a quote uh, attributed to a Beirut uh, kebab shop owner. Uh, sorry, a Beirut kebab shop owner's friend. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it was featured in the New York Times a couple of years ago. But I think it sums up the situation nicely. Uh, and the quote was, every country has its mafia, but in Lebanon, the mafia has its country. That leaves me uh, feeling a bit hungry, John. <laughs> Go get a kebab, Ethan. Here are a couple of the stories we're tracking today. For the second time, a court in Slovakia has acquitted a top businessman, Marion Kochner, on charges that he murdered a prominent investigative journalist and his fiance in 2018. The murder triggered a political crisis and a massive nationwide protest movement. One of Guatemala's most celebrated anti-corruption news sites, El Periodico, has been forced to close 10 months after its founder was put in jail. Rights experts have called the site's closure a breaking point for press freedom in the country. And that's going to do it for me. By the way, I've had some rough morning commutes over the years, flat tire on the bicycle, too crowded to find a seat on the bus, but I've never had as bad a commute as some folks in Mexico City just had. Check out the International Intrigue newsletter to see what was holding them up. In the meantime, I'm Ethan Plotkin. See you on Wednesday. Wednesday.